This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speak on Managing Risk in Government. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Each week, my goal is straightforward, to introduce you to key government executives and thought leaders who are tackling significant management challenges and seizing opportunities to lead. To complement these examples of leadership and action, I also highlight the practical, actionable research done by some of the most recognized and respected thought leaders in public management. Whether government leaders or thought leaders, our guests join us for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation. Over the last five years, I've interviewed more than 200 thought leaders and government executives. It is from this rich library that I've culled together their insights on managing risk in government. This world is fraught with uncertainty and all activities entail a certain level of risk. The increasing complexity and interconnectedness of today's society only ups the ante on the unknown. What makes a difference for individuals and organizations alike is how well they can handle an uncertain environment. With risks ranging from financial to reputational to operational, the way to manage this uncertainty is to build government capacity to anticipate and be resilient, to prepare for the future and its effects. U.S. federal agencies are hardly immune to the slings and arrows of uncertainty, which includes sequestration, budget cuts, or a government shutdown. Along with these threats, each day federal agency leaders face similar as well as unique risks associated with fulfilling their respective program missions. Today's headlines are filled with stories of failed website launches, cyber hacks, abusive power, extravagant spending, and a host of other risk management failures. The federal government has taken a hit, with the public's trust in government continuing to be low, as measured in numerous surveys. This view is shaped in part by some of the stories about how federal agencies could have improved their operational and mission performance had leaders taken the time to foresee and mitigate potential risks. The first step in tackling risk is defining it. The conventional view of risk is focusing on a potentially negative impact. Risk management in this context typically focuses on managing threats to objectives. Dr. Doug Webster, co-author with Tom Stanton of the IBM Center report, Improving Government Decision-Making Through Enterprise Risk Management, explains. 
Well, probably the most direct answer to that is that risk, if you look it up in the dictionary, is almost always couched in negative terms. So it's a threat, some vulnerability, and so on. And as a result, folks involved in risk management tend to look at, or not necessarily those only involved in risk management, but people that are impacted by risk management look at it in those terms. However, that's a very narrow context because you also need to consider what's the trade-offs, what's the rewards for for going after various risks. And so ISO 31000, International Standard on Risk Management, uh, defines risk as the uncertainty of objectives. Now, that that is a different definition of risk, but that having been said, it's not consistent with the other definition if for the other definition you also include what are the risks and the rewards. The point is that both of those need to be considered jointly. Maximizing the opportunity for success requires threats and opportunities are managed together. As government leaders allocate and invest resources, and develop strategic plans for their agencies, it is apparent that not all risks are threats. Some, in fact, bring opportunities. All future events and the achievement of future results, the heart of strategic planning, are uncertain because they haven't happened yet. In identifying, analyzing, and mitigating risks, the methods of enterprise risk management, ERM, can also be a powerful resource for strategic planning and effective decision-making. To that end, government leaders should view risk as uncertainty that matters. With uncertainties that face government widening and deepening, external and internal risks pose threats to achieving an organization's goals and objectives. Such risks include strategic, cyber, legal, and reputational, as well as a broad range of operational risks such as information security, human capital, financial control, and business continuity. Risks come from both outside and inside an organization. Doug Webster offers examples of external and internal risks agencies or organizations may face. Well, I think first off, in terms of the breadth of risk, it it certainly is focused on financial risks in certain types of agencies and in certain uh, functional roles, such as uh, you mentioned the financial role of a CFO. That having been said, I would suggest that risk across the federal government is certainly not historically limited to that. I mean, if one were to think of NASA as an agency, for example, they have all kinds of risks in achievement of their missions, but one would not naturally gravitate to financial risk there. In terms of... uh, internal versus external risks. Uh, The underlying principles of risk management are identical, but the context is different, meaning that internal risks that are typically risk to achieving some internal set of objectives, whether improving efficiency, effectiveness, et cetera, are things that the organization largely or generally has some significant degree of control over. External risks, on the other hand, you typically do not have an ability to control those risks. So while you may certainly impact the organization's ability to respond should that risk turn to an adverse event, you can't control the risk in the external environment. So that context is significantly different. The newspaper headlines lately illustrate classic examples of inadequate public and private sector risk management. Given these headlines, Tom Stanton, co-author of the IBM Center report, Improving Government Decision-Making Through Enterprise Risk Management, underscores the importance of considering possible risks up front. It's imperative to consider major risks up front because the cost of remediating a risk early may be a lot less than if you wait. And until recently, I would have used the Veterans Administration, 
the cost of remediating the Veterans Health Administration and reducing wait times would have been a lot less than suffering what both veterans and the VA suffered. Now, of course, we have the Office of Personnel Management and the abysmal failure to protect government workers against cybersecurity, against cyber threats. And that cost is immense. We haven't even gotten to the point where we know how many records were actually accessed. If somebody had done a decent job of cyber protection up front, we might have been able to avoid this. Um, to give you a private sector example, I was the point person on governance and risk management for the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission. Mm -hmm. And there you saw one major financial institution after another that simply failed to consider the risk of putting hundreds of billions of dollars in many cases of subprime mortgages on their books without reserving enough capital uh, in case of a realistic assessment of losses. And the cost of that compared to what it would have cost to deal with it up front, the cost of that to these institutions that blew themselves up, but also to us as a country, um, have been immense. Early efforts in the 1980s and 1990s to manage risk in government focused largely on internal and administrative controls with some application of traditional risk management principles. Congress passed laws, OMB issued guidance, and the General Accounting Office, since renamed the Government Accountability Office, defined standards, all in an effort to prescribe how federal agencies should manage internal risks. This early emphasis on internal controls was part of a burgeoning movement focused on improving accountability in federal programs and operations that addressed fraud, waste, and abuse. Federal agencies also began to employ, on an ad hoc and frequently siloed basis, risk management approaches to manage functional risk. Risk management practices also matured generally with the issuance of the first-of-its-kind standard risk management framework and process by the International Committee of Sponsoring Organizations of the Treadway Commission. Recognizing the benefits of managing risk from an organization-wide enterprise perspective, federal agencies incrementally expanded their use and adoption of formal ERM disciplines and principles beginning in the early 2000s. Lacking a formal federal risk management policy, agencies acted independently to leverage practices with proven track records in the private sector and had access to an increasing number of ERM frameworks and processes. The emergence of chief risk officers began in federal agencies. The coalescing of informal networks of risk management practitioners and thought leaders championed the benefits of ERM as a critical management tool. Revised OMB policy guidance on agency strategic planning and reviews suggested the use of ERM in agency strategic planning, signaling ERM as the way forward to managing risk in federal agencies. Doug Webster continues. Well, to the degree that the federal government is already involved in risk management, and I would suggest every organization is involved in risk management in some fashion, it has traditionally and typically been within various functional stovepipes. So, for example, the financial chief financial officer certainly worries about getting a clean audit opinion. The CIO worries about cybersecurity, et cetera. However, when you manage risks within these functional silos and you don't come together collectively, you don't have an ability to prioritize at the overall enterprise level across those functional stovepipes. Moreover, you don't have the ability to identify cross-functional impacts where 
Uh, the CIO, for example, mitigating one risk may be creating uh, unknowingly risks in other parts of the organization. You don't have the ability to prioritize resources across all of those. And finally, you, don't, you are unable to develop that portfolio view of risk across the enterprise to ensure it's consistent with a risk appetite for that organization. So what is the fundamental question to be asked when pursuing enterprise risk management? Tom Stanton, co-author of the IBM Center Report, Improving Government Decision-Making Through Enterprise Risk Management, explains. The problem with budget cuts is that very often they're not well thought out. And very often an agency will be under intense pressure to pretend they can do more with less when maybe they can't. Sometimes you can do more with less. But very often you can't cover the same waterfront without budget resources that you could cover with budget resources. So if the fundamental question that we ask in enterprise risk management is what are the major risks that could prevent our agency from achieving its mission or objectives? When you have budget cuts, the question is with less resources, what are the major risks? And very often the answers are different. Mm-hmm. One may not be able to change, to build on Doug's example uh, just now, one may not be able to change the extent of a budget cut. But you may be able to do risk management to cope better with a budget cut. And I'm thinking of the Department of Homeland Security and the former Undersecretary for Management who basically with large acquisitions – said, you know, this acquisition might have a five-year time horizon. We want to make sure a funding is cut in year three that we get something for it. Mm -hmm. So they designed the acquisition in modules so that if funding were cut, not the ones asking for it, you still have something to show for this massive expenditure of funds rather than having nothing, which was too frequently the case. How can the effective use of risk management strategies improve senior leadership decision-making? Tom Stanton continues. Well, the whole point of risk management, enterprise risk management in particular, is that decision-makers consider both the rewards and the risks of any decision. In other words, there's an upside, and very often you have enthusiasts that want to go forward and do something. One needs to also listen to the downside, and you need to have a trade-off between the two. So uh, I'll give you an example from the financial crisis. We interviewed one of the firms that successfully navigated the crisis, and we walked out of their Taj Mahal, and my minder uh, made sure I didn't go off and do other informal interviews after we interviewed the CEO and said, let's go for coffee. And then he said, you know, so-and-so, the CEO, he asks my opinion on major risks all the time. And then he got a funny look on his face, and he said, but he asks 200 other people, too. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a CEO who is going to have a real sense, besides they had really good information systems to support analysis of risks and rewards, but that's going to be CEO who has a real sense of the contours of a good decision. Mm -hmm. And the, the risks that hurt you most, usually, are the ones you don't see. What is enterprise risk management, and how is it used in the U.S. federal government? We'll explore these questions and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speak, returns. (music) 
The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center Reports at businessofgovernment.org. What are key leadership qualities for a digital age? How can you become a mindful leader? What tools and practices can be employed to better lead yourselves, your team, and your organizations? Join host Michael Keegan next week on the Business of Government Hour as he explores these questions and more with Jacqueline Carter, co-author of The Mind of the Leader, How to Lead Yourself, Your People, and Your Organization for Extraordinary Results. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday, 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speak, a conversation on managing risk in government. Recognizing the benefits of managing risk from an enterprise perspective, federal agencies expanded the use and adoption of the formal discipline of ERM and its principles. Despite the initial slow progress and misunderstanding of the term ERM, concrete progress is now underway. ERM is a discipline that addresses the full spectrum of an organization's risks including challenges and opportunities, and integrates them into an enterprise, strategically aligned portfolio view. This definition provides leaders a forward way of looking at risks that can better inform their strategy and business decisions. It allows for more risk management options through enterprise-level trade-offs versus a primary focus on reducing risks through controls. Doug Webster, co-author of the IBM Center Report, Improving Government Decision-Making Through Enterprise Risk Management, explains... I think that's an extremely important question because one of the big frustrations I have is enterprise risk management these days is a term that's thrown out there very loosely Mm -hmm. and very poorly understood by so many people who use that term. And that doesn't uh, restrict itself only to those in the federal government where the term is newer than it is in the private sector, but also in the private sector. I've talked to folks within the risk management profession that don't understand and who use the term enterprise risk management and really don't understand the principles. To, because for many people, enterprise risk management is simply glorified risk management, meaning it's still conducted within functional silos and it's done really well, but they have not taken that next step to try and integrate those across those silos. In some cases, it's it's the term is used when what they're really talking about is internal controls. And enterprise risk management and risk management in general, for that matter, is much broader and than simply internal controls. Uh, so I, the, the metaphor that I, I like to use because it works for me is, is the fact that if you had all the various functional stovepipes, whether it belonging to a functional head like a CIO, a CFO, so on, or, a, or an, a bureau-level head or a program office represented by a brick, the metaphor I use is a pile of bricks is not equal to a brick wall. (laughs) ERM takes what you have in risk management today, and hopefully you've got a complete um, set of processes that are focused functionally, programmatically, et cetera, but then takes it a further step and brings the mortar, if you will, to those bricks, to turn in a brick wall, to generate a portfolio view. Without that, you're really not talking about enterprise risk management. You're simply talking about traditional risk management. The use of enterprise risk management has been maturing and evolving in the private sector for many decades. 
but fairly recent in the public sector. Doug Webster elaborates on the history and continuing evolution of ERM within federal agencies, highlighting some of the early adopters within the federal government and what lessons they have learned. The the notions, the underlying principles of enterprise risk management date back uh, to the early 70s, but the actual term itself, enterprise risk management, didn't come about until uh, about the year 2000. Uh, in the year 2004, Federal Student Aid within the Department of Education was the first organization to actually go out and hi- establish the position of a chief risk officer and hire against that position. And that began to establish the the ability to think about risk holistically across the organization. Um, They and other organizations uh, within the federal government over the years have begun to implement uh, those principles of enterprise risk management. Some have gone further than others, as one would readily expect. And unfortunately, in some cases, some have have backslid a little. So uh, enterprise risk management is not something that just because you head down the road, you're going to automatically continue to keep going. It's going to take sustained effort. It's going to take sustained uh, championship and tone at the top. And it's it's a, a long-term effort. But uh, it began, as I mentioned, uh, in the year uh, 2004 in the federal government. When I was CFO at Labor in 2008, I developed a network of folks who shared that passion and interest in enterprise risk management. And we put together this ad hoc group of federal executives called the Federal ERM Steering Group. And we teamed with a local university to put on the first ever Federal Enterprise Risk Management Summit in 2008. And that has continued every year since. And then in the year 2011, uh, I worked with a number of folks, and, and t- including Tom, who's the co-author in this report, and we transitioned that group into the Association for Federal Enterprise Risk Management. So that's a formal professional association today that I think we're all very proud of. It's a long-term effort that may require government leaders to go beyond the normal every day. Dr. Karen Hardy, author of the IBM Center report, Managing Risk in Government, an Introduction to Enterprise Risk Management, and Deputy Director for Risk Management at the U.S. Department of Commerce, puts a finer point on the impact of ERM on federal agencies. Well, it's, it sounds a little cliche, yeah. but it's true. Okay. Traditional risk management uh, is often uh, uh, performed within uh, silos. Okay. I know you've, you've heard that term before, or stovepipes. People manage and are comfortable uh, about information that's within their organization, and they only think within the the context within their organization or their unit or their branch. So that includes conversations of risks that they've identified and how those risks impact where they are Mm -hmm. uh, within the context and walls within the organization. Enterprise risk management really challenges us to go beyond the four corners of our organizations and reach across aisles or within, as they call, the white spaces. Mm -hmm. And think about how you manage risk could impact other parts of the organization. What does that look like? Um, You could think of many examples of how if you're doing, uh, let's say, uh, a a renovation, you just don't, uh, you're just not concerned about the renovation itself, the mm-hmm. construction project, but how does that impact morale mm-hmm. for your work staff? That's a human capital and HR issue. So enterprise risk management really um, provides the opportunity to uh, have individuals who have never had discussions about risk before actually come together and talk about it and appreciate the different perspectives and then take that information 
and model it so that it's helpful and uh, to leadership to make decisions within the organization. Hardy gives us insight into how an agency can implement ERM and some guiding principles that can sustain a serious effort. Within enterprise risk management, is very important. Again, another cliche, but it's true. <laughs> I hate to, to mention the cliches, but they are true. They've been tested to be true. Exactly. Tone at the top is very important, but also tone in the middle. Mm-hmm. Top in the middle across the organization. So within the Department of Commerce, we've done a couple of things. One is we've established the principles, the tone at the top, which really um, describes the, our philosophy about risk management, what our values are regarding uh, risk management. And really, there are really four philosophy, one philosophy, four principles. Uh, one of them has to do with the fact that we believe that uh, enterprise risk management as a process shall be applied across the en- entire department. Mm-hmm. And that's unifying efforts across the department um, and a unification that will ensure that strategies mm-hmm. and actions are informed by a common understanding of risk which is an essential requirement, really, to inform priorities and allocate uh, resources. Another principle is that we believe risk management uh, practices at all levels uh, should be integrated into informed decision-making and priority setting, ensuring that risk risk information and analysis is incorporated into strategic and operational decision-making for us is fundamental, not only to the department, but also to the Bureau's success overall. And we also feel that identification of potential risk and mitigation of those risks is a critical management responsibility uh, to have informed decision makings. Another key principle for us has to do with emerging risk, meaning that emerging risk to the department and the, and the bureau objectives mm-hmm. shall be, and you shall be, dynamically um, identified and managed Using risk information and analysis will make the department uh, program assumptions more transparent. We think that will strengthen processes, uh, encourage innovation, and provide the basis for more informed and, I would say, defensible uh, decisions made with the best available tools and the best available information for the best achievable uh, outcomes. It it all makes sense. And then finally, the fourth principle that we advocate is that consistent, ensuring that consistent and disciplined consideration and treatment of risk is part of day-to-day processes. It's not something that you just do one day and put it in a file cabinet or you just do when there's a crisis, but it's something that is engaging on a daily basis. So enterprise risk management must be a visible and uh, integral part of uh, the, the department's culture mm-hmm. and allowing the department to fill, to fill its mission and goals uh, more effectively. The importance of embedding enterprise risk management into an organization's culture is critical. Hardy continues. Well, one, we talked about understanding what it is yeah. and what it is not. Mm-hmm. Enterprise risk management is not a shadow audit function. A lot of times, yeah, but, well, folks think that is uh, just another arm of auditing. And really, the beauty is that enterprise risk management is meant to balance out the auditing function and activities within organizations. You know, auditors, they take snapshots of points of times of information, 
Enterprise risk management is more forward-thinking, proactively thinking about. So an organization is, is, is has two different uh, varying lanes that they need to think about, and it, it, it really balances that out. And so the challenge is making sure people understand that it's not a got you. I haven't heard that in the word. I haven't used that term in a long time, Michael. <laughs> but it's not a gotcha yeah. initiative or activity. It's it, it's about really um, helping organizations uh, better position themselves to uh, achieve their mission and goals and objectives um, and taking away uh, levels of uncertainty so they can, they can be successful in what they do. Taking away levels of uncertainty so that agencies can be successful in what they do highlights key benefits. Karen Hardy, author of the IBM Center Report, Managing Risk in Government, highlights those benefits. A lot of benefits. One is that people get comfortable, begin to get comfortable with the idea of talking about risk. In our early conversation, we talked about how the perception of risk is always negative. Well, there was a time when you brought the word risk, uh, people would go in the opposite direction and, and move forward. But now people are becoming more engaged in the conversation. That's a huge that's a big change. Yeah, change. And that's a big deal in the federal government space. Because over time, I think there's more understanding about it's not just about laws. It's about good business. Mm-hmm. What good business does not take into account risk? Mm-hmm. And it's just part of business practice. So as people, is that understanding of how that is used and utilized within an organization moves forward, then folks will see more of the benefits related to that. The other thing I think is, you know, who doesn't want to be in a position where they're better prepared to deal with, mm-hmm. you know, things that happen? We're not saying that enterprise risk management uh, provides 100% reasonable assurance of anything. Uh, I don't think anything does. You can't. 100% eliminate risk. Yeah. Not if you have objectives and you're p- pursuing opportunities. Risk exists. The idea of being better positioned to deal with it, to respond to it, to manage it, either during the crisis or just normal day-to-day business, uh, I think that's very uh, attractive um, to organizations, and they want to be able to get ahead of things rather than just be in a reactive uh, Position. What are some of the best practices for successfully implementing ERM? Dr. Karen Hardy continues. I think a leading practice, yeah. and I've seen this over, yeah, a, a leading practice that I've seen. There's several I've seen. And uh, again, uh, having the benefit of engaging with bureaus and, and doing work for such a long time, I think one of the key uh, leading practices is to have a defined common understanding of what risk is. Um, the other one is the organization needs to determine how do they feel about risk. I mean, what's the philosophy? Do you see risk as loss? Do you mm-hmm. see it as op- balancing opportunity? That has to be defined up front by the, uh, by the organization. It's key and important to have defined roles and rep- responsibilities. Uh, we can say that everyone is responsible for risk management, but who is accountable and for ensuring that risk management is something that's fluid throughout the organization, uh, which is very important. I think adopting a risk management framework, it helps to define what the scope of effort is for employees across the board. They need to know what the components are. You know, how do I manage a risk? When I do identify, what do I do with it? Um, how does risk information inform leadership to make better decisions? Uh, who benefits from the information itself. So a framework helps to create those type of outputs 
so that you understand and can answer those types of questions. Education and training, you can't get enough of that. I know that it's tough in this budget environment to to actually support and resource education and training. But the form of education and training is changing, such as through the council. Mm -hmm. A lot of informal personal networks, I think, uh, will really uh, help in that area. And the exchange of ideas within a forum is very important. And um, I can go on and on, but for the most part, I think those are some of the big key ones. What can federal agencies learn from the U.S. Department of Education's Risk Management Program? I'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speaks, returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speak, a conversation on managing risk in government. An IBM Center report, Risk Management for Grants Administration, a case study of the Department of Education by Young Hung Kwok and Julia Kelleher, explores the experience of the U.S. Department of Education in implementing risk management initiatives, which it initiated in 2001. During this period, the department created its Risk Management Service and expanded that office in 2007. At the same time, the department also continued to refine and revise its risk management tools. So risk management service at the Department of Education is responsible for identifying and taking effective action to manage and mitigate the risks that could impact the department's ability to achieve its mission. So again, focusing on uh, equal access to high-quality education to ensure global competitiveness of of youth today. And specific actions that they do to support their mission and then the larger agency mission is developing coordinating policy, uh, creating agency-wide tools that promote consistent assessment of risk, uh, working with the program officers to develop increased internal capacity to understand what risk management is, and to the question that was asked in the previous section, sort of what is this, how do you define it, raising awareness around that, building competence, uh, ensuring there's, again, consistent action so that you have a program office who's dealing with Um, you know, a particular state agency, that they're being treated similarly across program offices that may or may not have had a reason to to talk with each other. They also do training and development, and then they're responsible for the policy, generating the the policy documents that guide uh, how the agency makes and then manages its grants. For more than 25 years, the Department of Education has recognized the importance of assessing grantee risk 
Sure. So risk designations can be made for either a grant program or all of the grants that an entity receives. And in the sec- in that second instance, it's probably a more significant situation, right, where, sure. you know, it's yeah. not just this, the management of this one grant. It's the management of all of the grants that you get. And it's a, it's a legal, structured, formal, predictable, you know, very rigorous process that involves the Office of General Counsel. Okay. Um, there are existing regulations that the department uses to establish the thresholds and the, and the criteria. And then they, the, this process of making the designation usually uh, is followed by the placement of some conditions on the, the receipt of that money to make sure that, okay, we've identified a potential performance issue or uh, the presence of risk. Now we want to put this condition in place to sort of reduce the likelihood that there'll be fraud, waste, or abuse, or inability to execute program goals. It took the Department of Education's Risk Management Service several years to develop an agency-wide capacity to engage in grant risk management. Kwok and Kelleher, authors of the IBM Center Report, Risk Management for Grants Administration, a case study of the Department of Education, illustrate how the size and scope of the risk management efforts at Ed changed and expanded since 2001. So when the when uh, risk management was created in 2001, it was in the office of the secretary. Okay. And uh, there were, I think, five people who were f- just focused on management practices. Mm-hmm. Um, and then t- now today you have 25 people and three teams. And those, you know, you went from just management experts and sort of looking at things like audit issues and sort of the, the internal financial systems, that kind of stuff, to a, to a very um, diverse group of individuals who could really, uh, when working together, deal with all of the aspects of grant management. So you had a, now we have a policy team. Um, there's also a, a program uh, risk management the team that is in charge of creating the data, using the data and creating these tools, and then uh, a, um, a management improvement team, which is sort of probably what reflects the core of what the organization started with as the beginning. So now you have, so you have policy data and implementation. Kwok and Kelleher explain the Department of Education's effort to create new risk management tools and how they work. My understanding of what the agency is working on on now, and it's been there's been a little bit of time since our data collection and the and the publication of the report, but I believe that there there is an effort to increase the availability of data, and and I don't I don't mean to say increase the number of data elements that are presented in an ER, but increase access to data that could be relevant, right? Which opens a huge door because something that's not relevant today could be later, but at least we have a way of putting that data element in the pool. And then two, customizing the production of the ER such that it doesn't reduce the standardization or the fact that everyone's making a similar decision about risk assessment, but that it does provide program officers with a subset of information that's most relevant to their particular programmatic requirements, right? So if we have program requirement A and the grantee never did well on that, that I report that to program B who doesn't really have that requirement, that's not all that useful. So being able to sort of shift the scale a little bit so that each person can get a customized DRR that still has a a foundation or a framework that's pretty standardized across the organization. And then finally, I believe that there's a push to make this more um, user-friendly in the sense that it's not going to be something that 
you have to request that's run for you and then delivered, that they're looking for an interface that allows individuals to interact with the data. And again, you see an evolution. And I believe that the, you know, the evolution and the, the agency's organization to be able to evolve in that way is really a success story in and of itself yeah. because a lot of organizations don't function that way. And they, they have been able to create something formal where nothing existed before, build capacity, lead a conversation, sustain a conversation, and push that conversation into new space that I'm sure now with the omnicircular being out there and um, systemization in this federal space, they have an infrastructure that's going to allow them to meet those requirements because they built all this capacity leading up to it. What has the Department of Education done to build its capacity to meet its overall risk management efforts? Authors Kwok and Kelleher continue. I think it was remarkable what the, the vision for creating this tool. They, they really um, they showed a lot of thought leadership, I think, in identifying different data sources from different systems that currently weren't being linked but would be very informative if they were seen one next to each other. Mm -hmm. So, for example, all of the data from the A133 audits Mm -hmm. exists in the Federal Audit Clearinghouse that is not agency-owned and operated. But we have a grants management system that has a grants management system that looks at the performance of the grantees, the financial information, their applications, their DUNS number, past performance, all of those things. So it would be helpful to see the grants management information next to the audit information. And then they incorporated a third proprietary set of data and and tried to learn different ways of linking and looking at the relationship between those factors and then creating scores and thresholds so that when you're dealing with so much information, you can more quickly identify uh, what would be a consideration. So if I've had a previous audit finding, is, is that a problem? Or if I've had the same audit finding for the last five years, is that a problem? And so what they were able to do was have the vision of linking these data systems and then presenting the information to the program officers in a way that flagged their attention. So, oh, this is this is a cell is a certain color. I think we should pay a little bit more attention because, you know, it looks like, you know, scoring wise, there may be an issue here. And then they that so that was sort of the the, the beginning, the big this vision in, in 2020. 10, 2011. And then through a process of experience working with the program officers, they were able to refine that. So you reduce the number of flags, let's say, or, or places where people may need to look a little bit more closely at a grantee. So that, again, the process is becoming more and more efficient, but it's standardized. Everyone's looking at the same set of information. It's all being scored the same way. We're all focusing. And then these these reports were all stored in a central location so that individuals could, if they wanted to see an ER, uh, this entity risk review for a different grant program, they could they could access that information too. So it's really the evolution of sort of different data systems that aren't connected, putting them together, making sense of them, and then making the interpretation of that information easier and easier as a result of ongoing conversations with program officers. So, I mean, that sounds great, but that's a lot of the, the agency did a lot of heavy lifting to be able to, to go through that back and forth iterative process with people to understand what is most relevant. Kwok and Kelleher also discussed the lessons learned from the Department of Education's efforts to incorporate risk assessment and risk mitigation practices into grants management. Yeah, so as, uh, as uh, Julia mentioned in the previous um, um, segment, that the risk management services, the RMS work in the developing risk assessment and the mitigation activities has been um, great at the Department of Education. 
Uh, in addition to that, the Department of Education demonstrates compliance with federal requirements and that the RMS efforts um, have fostered the creation of a culture that understands and values risk management. So the thing that is recognizing the importance of assessing risk and sharing information about grantee risk has become a very meaningful grants management activity. You know, the, the example that we gave, the RMS success in creating a common risk assessment tool has fostered the creation of an enterprise approach to risk management within the Department of Education. It has also uh, led to an increase in the use of the so-called data-driven decisions. Uh, we do believe that the RMS could increase the capacity and accuracy of risk assessment by expanding the information sources included in the entity risk review that the uh, RMS current ideas to find ways to incorporate unstructured data, including text-based reports and public information into risk assessment models, are likely to produce more robust risk assessment. At the same time, we do believe the agency will benefit greatly from efforts to expand its capacity to identify and analyze the characteristics and impacts of program risk or those risks inherent to the grant program by nature of its requirement. How has the U.S. Department of Labor employed risk management strategies to reduce improper payments in its unemployment insurance program? We will explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speak, returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. What are key leadership qualities for a digital age? How can you become a mindful leader? What tools and practices can be employed to better lead yourselves, your team, and your organizations? Join host Michael Keegan next week on the Business of Government Hour as he explores these questions and more with Jacqueline Carter, co-author of The Mind of the Leader, How to Lead Yourself, Your People, and Your Organization for Extraordinary Results. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday, 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speak, a conversation on managing risk in government. The IBM Center for the Business of Government has a long interest in risk management, and today we explore a specific focus on employing risk management strategies to reduce improper payments in the U.S. Department of Labor's Unemployment Insurance Program. Professor Justin Bullock, co-author of the IBM Center Report, Risk Management and Reducing Improper Payments, a case study of the U.S. Department of Labor, explores the strategies used by labor to tackle improper payments and payment errors. This is another fun example of getting your head wrapped around a bunch of, uh, in, the, in the weeds of the research and um, kind of uh, assuming that these things are self-explanatory when they're, and, when they're not. And so the program letters are the, the ETA, the Employment and Training Administration, has an assistant secretary 
that when they want to convey strategies or nationwide information to the disparate states, they write a program letter. And so all a program letter is, is it's alerting from the Department of Labor and within the Department of Labor, the Employment Training Administration um, is alerting all of the state workforce agencies. You might remember when uh, in an earlier question, we were talking about uh, the different roles the federal government and the state governments play, and the states are really the ones implementing this on the ground, and they're uh, not always talking with the other states. And so it's a way for the the program letters as a way for the Employment uh, and Training Administration to let all the states through one sort of official memo or one official document, let them know what they're trying to do to improve the efficiency or effectiveness of the unemployment insurance program. These program letters established four root causes of improper payments in the unemployment insurance program. Bullock explains. So at this time, um, around 2011, the Department of Labor uh, as you say, uh, identified four root causes. Um, they laid them out in the program letter. And these four root causes were, uh, the first one is uh, payments that are made to claimants who continue to claim benefits after returning to work and failing to report or under-reporting their claims. And so this root cause is when people get a job and either don't report that they've got a job or when they do report they've got a job, under-report how much they're making so they can continue um, to get some unemployment insurance. The second root cause is untimely and incomplete job separation information. And what this means is that when the state workforce agencies have a case agent on some applicant for unemployment insurance, that um, they don't have the correct or complete information about why the individual is no longer working with the company they were. And so this can lead to some errors. Uh, the third root cause uh, is the state's, in a, the state's inability to validate that claimants have met the state's work search requirements. So um, most of these states have some form of a requirement where if you're going to be receiving unemployment insurance, you have to demonstrate that you are actively looking for work. And there are some administrative issues with, um, with, with doing that. And so some of these improper payments or a large portion of these improper payments uh, arise from that. And the fourth root cause uh, is claimant's failure to register with the state's employment service or the agency's failure to process the employment service registrations. So there's another set of organizations uh, or another entity within these states that ha- they have an employment service, which is gives them helps give them access uh, to resources to um, either get a job or go through some training. And so, um, if either the claimant or the agents fail to do that, that can also trigger an improper payment. So those are the kind of at this time were the kind of root causes. And interestingly, they have changed over time. Um, in some of the earlier. Um, reports and the National Commission that I mentioned earlier, they weren't exactly the same. And so as the Department of Labor tries to tackle some of these, other problems stick out. To combat these known financial and reputational risks, the Department of Labor identified eight different strategies. Justin Bullock, co-author of the IBM Center report, Risk Management and Reducing Improper Payments, outlines the key points of strategy one, developing 
unemployment insurance performance measures. This is the first strategy that was sort of identified by the Department of Labor, which was developing unemployment insurance performance measures. And um, here what they were trying to do is figure out what measure um, can they use to clearly highlight how well these state workforce agencies. And so the performance measure um, that they developed uh, to protect unemployment insurance integrity is the percentage of unemployment insurance benefits overpaid by a state due to benefit year earnings fraud. And so, um, in other words, the main performance measure is the ratio of the amount in benefits improperly overpaid. Again, as I mentioned, they're mostly interested in overpayments here to individuals because of uh, earnings or wages um, being incorrectly or, or not reported. And again, this uh, highlights that they're focusing on overpayments and it lets the states know that the, the measures that the Department of Labor or the ETA are going to care about is overpayments as a result of earnings from the time period in question being incorrect. Bullock ends by highlighting the key findings in his IBM Center report. There are four that were sort of our big takeaways, and some of these will seem, I think, um, in some ways self-evident, but also a, a, a lot of evidence to support um, what we might suge- have suggested anecdotally. And so the first one is that it's really useful to establish clear metrics for measurement and evaluation. And so we found throughout the study that um, um, compared to other types of risk management problems, improper payment reduction has the advantage of a clear standard established by law in the Improper Payment Elimination and Recovery Act. And so it was really, it's really something easy to, um, to focus on and to try to achieve an overall reduction in improper payments. And so the, um, having a clear metric for measurement and evaluation gave standards from which they could work from and also um, uh, made it such that states could compare across their uh, counterparts and their colleagues. Um, so we, and we also found that the Texas Workforce Commission did indeed focus on these measures and evaluations. Um, so uh, having a clear metric we thought was uh, one sort of uh, a clear metric for measurement and evaluation was one of these uh, was our first recommendation for managing operational risks in a complex institutional arrangement. The second one was to take advantage of recommended strategies and resources, but also don't be afraid to innovate. And so here we were really drawing from our case where we saw that the Texas Workforce Commission had been uh, taking advantage of all these strategies and on top of that, had some additional success from building from those strategies and thinking about carefully about the work that had been put into developing them, but also not being afraid to try some new things. We were talk- as, I were talk- as we were talking about earlier, using things like predictive analytics and building on the resources that are provided to them. So again, recommendation two, take advantage of recommended strategies, uh, best practices, and uh, don't be afraid to innovate and build on top of those. 
The third recommendation was to, is to provide relevant and timely information to stakeholders. And so one of the Department of Labor's main goals in offering the recommended tools and strategies that we mentioned above was to simply increase communication, the quality of uh, communication, and the timeliness of communication between the relevant stakeholders. And um, for example, one of the DOL strategies targeted messages to claimants uh, was found to be an effective strategy to combat improper payments that were caused by work search requirements, which is, was one of the identified root causes. Um, and same thing with the toolkit. The toolkit uh, provided uh, information and standardized information to a variety of stakeholders, as did as does the UI Integrity Center of Excellence. And so this type of communication among states and the Department of Labor um, was able to increase the type of communication, the quality of information, and um, help the disparate states identify the best practices and implement them, and also helps make sure that the employers and the claimants, those seeking unemployment insurance, have the right information they need to know what their responsibilities are. Uh, the fourth and final recommendation um, is that a broad range of strategies uh, is needed when the causes of operational risks are varied. And so one of the things we really liked about the Department of Labor strategies is they didn't, even though I've harped a little bit on the NDNH, they recognized that the risks that they were incurring in terms of operational risks with respect to financial, uh, to improper payments, uh, were from several different root causes and not any one of these strategies could easily handle the uh, all four root causes. And so they, they realized that one way to m mitigate or minimize these operational risks is to implement several different types of strategies, each with their own likelihood of success, and each that had some trade-offs between um, discretion and not, and automated and not, and communication and information, and sort of kind of threw the gamut at it. And we thought that was a, another good recommendation for uh, dealing with these complex environments when you know you have operational risks. Technological advances have made federal agency systems, infrastructure, processes, and technologies interconnected and interdependent, such that a risk encountered by one area impacts other operations. This interconnected environment makes the managing of risks across the enterprise more necessary than ever. It also precipitates a change in how government leaders view risks. No longer thinking about risk management as largely a compliance exercise or perceiving risks in solely negative terms as something to be avoided. With that as the backdrop, OMB revised its risk management guidance, Circular A123, setting forth the first time a formal government-wide policy for how government leaders should manage risk and internal controls in their agencies. Federal agencies must now implement an ERM framework that also integrates their existing internal control processes. Thanks for joining me on this special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speak on Managing Risk in Government. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.
What are key leadership qualities for a digital age? How can you become a mindful leader? What tools and practices can be employed to better lead yourselves, your team, and your organizations? Join host Michael Keegan next week on the Business of Government Hour as he explores these questions and more with Jacqueline Carter, co-author of The Mind of the Leader, How to Lead Yourself, Your People, and Your Organization for Extraordinary Results. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.